This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. One of my favorite books I've read this year, and one that I'm sure I'll return to again and again, is Catherine May's newest, Wintering the power of rest and retreat in difficult times. In it, she explores how we can change the way we relate to difficult periods in our lives. Drawing on lessons from nature, literature, and mythology, she works to normalize our need to retreat in order to tend to our wounds, heal, reflect, and reemerge. Today, we talk about the ways that intergenerationally we've been taught to look down on other people's misfortunes, which in turn makes it nearly impossible for us to respect the sadness in our own lives. We talk about being addicted to productivity and busyness, which is something that I think rings true for many of us. And she shares how she works to actively accept the sadness in her life and to see times of retreat as space for growth and learning, while also recognizing and honoring its inherent pain. Catherine's work was a very welcome solve for me, and I'm excited to share it with all of you. We have got to start feeling responsible for controlling that because that attempt to control it is devastating to us. It, and it's a lie. We, we just cannot do it. The art is learning to let go and to live with what is there in front of us, to take it day by day, to work out what we have to do and to just walk alongside our human life. Okay, let's get to my chat with Catherine May. In a way, I'm sad I didn't read Wintering at a slower pace because it is such a beautiful book. And oh, thank you. It's, re- it's really something to savor. And I, it was such a relief from the things that I have been reading that I just mm. blasted through it. And now I think I need to read oh, it again. 
<laughs> oh, lovely. It came out earlier this year in the UK. And there are several people that have been tweeting me this week, funny enough, to say they're reading it a second time. It's just the winter's come round and they're ready for it again. So I think it is one that people return to. Yeah, no, it's so it's just full of these beautiful moments of complete and total resonance. And I guess we can sort of start with wintering, which in a way I loved your definition when you were talking about pulling your son out of school, which Mm. is, you know, the active acceptance of sadness. It is the practice of allowing ourselves to feel it as a need. Mm. I loved that, that moment of, of, because I think that we all can deeply relate that, that those needs to hi- to hibernate, to retreat, mm. uh, to lick our wounds, to reconsider. In a way, we've almost been in a collective wintering for this yeah. entire year. Yeah, and maybe even longer. I mean, I think when we look at our political situation and, you know, not just your country, but my country too, I think we've all spent the last four or five years in conflict quite often with family members and friends and you know that sense of absolute tension and stress at at having to take responsibility for how the world's going I I think we've all been in a very long winter actually yeah certainly really forced to examine the systems and structures and Mm. where we place our power and you know I guess we could even start there sort of in the preceding paragraphs to that Mm. sort of declarative definition of wintering when you decide when your your son I I related very much to this and pulled my son out of school and put him in another school when you write about sort of his despair he was six right in kindergarten he was six yeah. yeah he was six which is infant school in in the UK and he just had got to the point where he was so stressed by school he was just melting down every morning and every evening And we turned to loads of people for advice, but everyone's advice was like, well, you just have to find a way to force him back in. I mean, they didn't say it like that, but that's that's the message, really. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to do that. I wanted to show my son that I understood what it was like to go through a personal crisis and to feel at odds with the world and to feel like stuff isn't right, you know, and I wanted to show him that I was listening. And so I pulled him out of school and homeschooled him for nine months, actually. Yeah. And I loved that sort of how desperate you were for your time again, but how you were yes. not willing to, to, to get him back into school by breaking him. And Absolutely. it's such a, you know, and I'm sure that people who don't have kids can relate to this as well, just thinking back on their own childhoods, but there's no control on childhood, right? There's mm. no guarantee of following a path. Like there's no A-B testing, right? You're not sort of like, <laughs> no. well, I could do this and it will ensure this or that. Like it is uncertainty yeah. in a child who you desperately want to deliver to safety and security, even though we know those are myths in some ways as well. Yeah. I mean, we're balancing so much, aren't we? I mean, I, th- I think we all remember those moments in our own childhood when we felt quietly desperate for to be able to stop something or to make it go a different way, but we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And now as an adult, I, I try and listen to those moments. But I also know that, you know, my son needs to sometimes struggle against something. He needs to find life difficult sometimes. But I have to make a call on how difficult I think it's okay for him to find it. And, and you know, it went way past that point for me. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, so, it's such a tricky thing to balance as a parent, isn't it? How do we teach our children resilience, but also teach them how to take care of themselves at the same time? They can be really conflicting messages, I think. 
Absolutely. And I, if you don't mind if I read this, because I think it's so beautiful, you write, as children, we tolerate working conditions that we'd find intolerable as adults, the constant exposure of our attainment to a hostile audience, the motivation by threat instead of encouragement, and big threats too. If you don't do this, you'll ruin your whole future life. The social work in which you're mocked and teased, your most embarrassing desire is exposed, your new form body held up for the kind of scrutiny that would destroy an adult. Mm. And it is, it's true. You want, you want to sort of coach stamina and resilience. And yet at the same time, you have to allow for folding. And maybe that's where we've gotten it wrong and why a book like yours is so essential because we, life isn't this sort of slow march in the face of bullying and humiliation. We need the opportunity to retreat. We need the opportunity to feel our feelings and feel sad and to not acknowledge them as the ultimate form of gaslighting, really. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think it's so true. And I think we don't know how to take care of ourselves very well. And so how on earth are we going to teach our children how to do it? You know, they well, my son now, because of the pandemic, is signed up to like a kind of team computer program and he can email his friends. And so tonight I looked at him and he was emailing his classmates in the evening. And I thought, wow, when do you get to switch off ever? Because that's going to get worse and worse for them. That's the only thing they know. And I know that I spent times in my childhood of what I thought at the time was intense boredom, but now it seems luxurious, you know, (laughs) that time on my own to to just be, they don't get to be anymore very much. Yeah. Now, but I think that the the greatest gift really is is boredom in some mm. ways, and also this a deeper understanding of the cadence of things that you write about it in the context of nature and sort of how dead nature can look in the winter, yet it's just preserving itself for its next like burst of life, amassing its energies, and also that we will all fall and we will all get up again, and that there this sort of idea that there's a midlife crisis or you're going to experience a few hardships in your life and that's it as you as you trek <laughs> forward is just completely inaccurate right yeah that- yeah I mean for me it's about every three years I think I hit some kind of a big change or a crisis and I I really do think that we don't acknowledge how almost routine it is for us to have these crises these times when we fall through the cracks of life when everything feels frozen I know that that's a regular cycle for me. I can almost set my watch by it, that no matter how well life is going, I'll come across some change that needs to happen. And I'll always start by resisting that change every single damn time. I wish I didn't, but (laughs) it's always the way, right? And so we have to learn to winter. We have to learn to crash out and to see that as normal and perfectly okay and actually a time of enormous growth and learning, but painful too. Like I, I don't ever want to deny that wintering is really agonizing because it is, and I don't think we can sugarcoat that. Yeah. But you also write about, and I think this is, a, if we can learn sort of one lesson from this book, how sort of intergenerationally we've, we've been taught to mm. look down at other people's misfortunes, right? And yeah. Yeah. you talk about how it's, harmful, not only because, and here I quote you, it stops us from learning that disaster happens and how to adapt when it does, 
it stops us from reaching out to people who are suffering. And when our own disaster comes, it forces us into a humiliated retreat as we try to hunt down mistakes that we never made in the first place or wrong-headed attitudes that we never held. But that this is everyone, it happens to everyone. There's no ignoring yourself from losing a parent, losing a loved one, losing a job, losing an opportunity, getting yeah. a diagnosis. These are, as you said, you're not alone. I think that these come every year for many people. And yet we let people suffer in silence. We can't, sometimes we can't relate, but other mm. times we just, it's almost like we worry it's contagious <laughs> or yeah. Yeah. just want to understand how this could have happened to them to make sure that it could never happen to us. And really mm. there's no protection. No. And I think we think that that story is our protection, that, you know, if we can find the reason that they're wintering and the reason they've made a mistake, that therefore we wouldn't make that mistake, you know, so they've lost their job because, oh, well, perhaps they were actually a bit sloppy or, you know, perhaps they're just really difficult to be around. Perhaps they didn't do enough, you know, or their marriage breaks down and you think, well, maybe. And <laughs> I think we, you know, I know I, I know I've learned to do that in my life and I know that I can default to it. And it's a real practice to say, actually, that person is suffering. It's none of my business why they're suffering. They just are. And I've suffered too. And I'm going to try and show them the same compassion that I'd like the next time it happens to me. It's quite a simple exchange when you frame it that way. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Throughout the book, you sort of open the book talking about your husband and mm. being up in the hospital with appendicitis. Yeah. You talk about your own fear of a diagnosis. You talk mm. a little bit about your Asperger's, which I know was the subject of your of the book before this. Yeah. And then you write sort of so powerfully about your friend and her diagnosis of being manic depressive and sort of how it isn't really, I loved this point. I thought it was so beautiful where she finally goes to, it's a different GP, right? Like she, mm -hmm. she was going in for her checkup and it was a different doctor. And he yeah. just said, no, this isn't about you getting fixed. This is about mm -hmm. you living the best life you can with the parameters that you have and how dramatic that had been. But yeah. Again, it, and yeah. It speaks to this idea that we feel like we can forward March and life yeah. will tell us otherwise. 
Yeah, I mean, I for me, that's one of the big messages I wanted to get across in this book, that actually the change we're accepting when we winter isn't always positive. You know, there's not always a win here. It's not like, oh, you're looking for the, the bit of knowledge that will make this fine. When daughter, you know, after being bipolar since she was a teenager, saw a, a different GP just one day, just by accident, really, you know, the other one was on holiday or whatever. And he said to her, like, this is not about you being permanently fixed. This is about you learning to find a way to live with how you are, how your brain is. And that, weirdly, was the the sort of starting point for her to be able to get much more well than she'd ever been in her whole life. And she did it by starting ice swimming, which maybe is not the approach that everybody would take. But she essentially, she went to a spa where she tried an ice plunge pool and found that it really calmed her and so started swimming in the sea. And that means that she's been able to manage her bipolar disorder to such an extent that she had to come off the medication last year because it was too strong for her and it was making her unwell. And it's just fascinating that the instigating moment for that was her accepting that she couldn't be perfectly well, that she couldn't get rid of this thing and just adapting instead. There's such a lesson there for all of us, I think. Oh, such a lesson. Mm-hmm. And then and and through that, probably like found her way to a richer life where she wasn't in, it sounds to me like she was in a bit of like social overdrive or perfe- yeah. you know, the perfectionism that captures so many women in particular. Oh my goodness. And actually, that's what she's very careful to say. You know, it's not just about the fact that she started ice swimming, even though she feels like that did her loads of good. She made loads of adaptations as well. So as you say, she stopped saying yes to everything. She stopped looking after everyone else's kids and running around to everyone else's houses at the you know least invitation. She started eating better. She cut sugar from her diet. She did all kinds of things, a whole list of things. And she said she likes to keep her margins broad, by which means, you know, she means she needs some extra space at the edges of her energy to make sure she's got enough. She doesn't impinge on, you know, the very raw edges of what she can possibly do. And I, I mean, I relate to that really strongly. I know I've absolutely been there and I'm sure so many other people have too. Yeah. And I know that this book isn't about sort of Asperger's, but I'm Mm. wondering if you could tell me a little bit about like how you ended up with that diagnosis and then how and when and how that changed your perspective. Because you also write Mm. about sort of realizing that you couldn't power your way out of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm 43. I'm I'm prepared to admit that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right behind you. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We're we're all getting there eventually. (laughs) But when I was a little girl, uh, an Asperger's diagnosis, as it would have been then, I mean, actually, it's all just autism now that that's Asperger's has disappeared from the from the DSM that it wasn't available for little girls when I was young. You know, there were plenty of people who thought that girls couldn't be autistic at all, or and most people thought that it was very, very rare. And so although I grew up knowing I was profoundly different from the other kids in my class and, and you know, anyone that I met, there was no account that I could make of my life that would have said, this is what you are. So actually, I struggled through my childhood feeling like an alien. I mean, literally, I used to fantasize that one day I'd just peel off my skin and a human being would be underneath it. I, it was really, I was felt so, so utterly at odds with everyone else. And that continued. I mean, it continued, you know, it made university incredibly difficult. It made holding down a job very difficult. And it was only when I had my son. And once again, I found myself 
feeling really clearly different to the other mothers, like not wanting to go to mother and baby groups and stuff like that. And just feeling alien all over again, that I began to look for what this thing was. I knew I had to find it. And I happened across a radio show one day when I was driving. It's crazy, isn't it? These things that just come into Mm -hmm. our path. And for the first time, I heard a woman talking about what it was like to be autistic rather than seeing autism described from the outside by a researcher who wasn't autistic themselves. And I immediately recognised myself. That that experiential account of it was totally different to what people observe. And I had a had this eureka moment driving down the street. And, you know, it took some time to process and that was a winter in itself and, you know, to, to get a diagnosis. But what that changed for me ultimately was that it let me understand my limitations and not be ashamed of them, just to see them as a difference. Mm. And that's all they are. And that's let me make adaptations that I would never have dreamt of making, but don't feel like a defeat. They feel like something that gives me life and means that I'm not going to go through the complete burnout that I used to go through so regularly before. Yeah. I mean, and one of the defining my um, best friend's son is on the spectrum. And one Mm. of the things that she grapples with and other sort of parents of children on the spectrum seem to grapple with is this idea of of no empathy. And it's Mm. such an irony, right? Like you've written a whole book. Your whole book is about deep, profound empathy, empathy, intense empathy. And so what, like, what are those things for you that were so defining where you were like, oh, oh, that's an articulation of what I've been feeling and these are the adjustments that I need to make. Well, empathy was definitely one of them. I mean, there's some really interesting research now that suggests that there's a kind of double empathy bind that basically autistic people struggle to empathise with how neurotypical people feel and act, and but also neurotypical people struggle to empathise with us as well. So it's it's not a one-way process. But my experience was being overwhelmed by feelings of empathy and by feeling kind of engulfed in other people's feelings, which is such a common thing for particularly girls to report, but also loads and loads of autistic men. The other thing that I really recognised was the sense of kind of sensory overwhelm. So touch, Mm. smell, noise, all of those things. And so when we talk about autistic behaviours, what they look like from the outside, that's often our response to overwhelm. You know, that's a stress response that comes from, you know, noise being so incredibly intense, like smell being overwhelming, sometimes the texture of stuff for me, it's different for everybody. But those are the things I really massively recognised. And I suppose the other thing was having like really intense, passionate interests that overtake me sometimes that feel absolutely glorious to me. That's what drives my writing, definitely. (laughs) I couldn't do what I did, you know, what I've done, you know, all through my adulthood without those passions and they're they're fantastic but there's a quality of attention that autistic people have that maybe doesn't exist outside of our world it sounds familiar to me and I would imagine like all things that the spectrum goes really wide right like that you're experiencing something more acutely that anyone Mm -hmm. can relate to yeah Um, I mean I always say like what people forget is we're on the human spectrum you know like we talk about autism like it's kind of a completely different state of humanity and I realize that it does look very alien to other people but actually we're doing all the all the kind of regular human stuff just often it's quite like the volumes turned up 
yeah. on certain parts of that experience. And it's, it can be turned very far down on others. We, our brains are wired differently. But yeah, it, I, I would love to get to the point when it stops surprising people that they recognize loads of stuff in themselves, because actually, it's just another version of being human. We're all humaning, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that makes sense. Like the dials for us are are turned to different levels of sensitivity or the, the filter. There's just a filter that yeah. which you can put on anyone. And I love the idea. And I think there's, a, as you said, a huge lesson for everyone in sort of understanding those moments of overload for each of us, which will always be different. But, you know, I love the idea that now when you sense a wintering you begin to treat yourself like a favored child with kindness and love and that you assume your needs are reasonable and that your feelings are important. I thought that was so beautiful just because I think like many women, and I also related at the beginning where you talk about like when you look back at an accounting of your days and time, you're like, what have I been doing? I've been so busy, but what have I actually done? Yeah, yeah. But this idea of being able to be kind to yourself Mm. and put yourself to bed is something I think we could all learn from. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And you know, this is where the disabled community of all stripes has so much to teach the world because we have had to give in to our needs, right? Like we, there's come a point for all of us where we have had to adapt and look after ourselves because otherwise we just couldn't survive at all. And I think that's so insightful for all the people I see running around like crazy things, just doing themselves harm. Uh, it's time that we all learn to do that. Yeah, as you say, to put ourselves to bed when we're tired. I mean, it's quite basic, you know, to drink water when we're thirsty, to eat when we're hungry, to take a walk in the fresh air, like all the basic stuff you'd tell a small child to do, you need to do for yourself. It's not rocket science, but we make hard work of it, don't we? Yes. And, (laughs) you know, for me, at least, busyness for me is one of my primary tools for shoving my feelings down, Mm. which are often loneliness, Mm. sadness, you know, low-grade despair. Yeah. And I love... Self-doubt, yeah. exactly. Existential angst. And <laughs> we all know about that this year, don't yeah, we? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think sort of when you talk about sadness and happiness and how it should be respected, if not savored, if you don't mind mm. if I read this to you again, I thought it was so beautiful. You say, if we don't allow ourselves the fundamental honesty of our own sadness, then we miss an important cue to adapt We seem to be living in an age when we're bombarded with entreaties to be happy, but we're suffering from an avalanche of depression. We're urged to stop sweating the small stuff, and yet we're chronically anxious. I often wonder if these are just normal feelings that become monstrous when they're denied. A great deal of life will always suck. There will be moments when we're riding high and moments when we can't bear to get out of bed. Both are normal. Both, in fact, require a little perspective. Mm, yeah, I love that. <laughs> Glad, and it's yeah. true. A great it, deal of life will always suck. We can't stop life from sucking. I wish we could, but we really can't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's all sorts of things about life that suck. I mean, we live by you know, past standards, incredibly luxurious lives now, you know, what my grandma wouldn't have given for central heating that turned on like mine does. And, you know, hot bath water every day, my goodness, should have thought that was such an incredible luxury. But 
that doesn't stop really terrible things from happening. You know, people will always die. People will always get sick. People will always betray us. Terrible things will happen in the news. I mean, great big pandemics land sometimes and threaten our entire way of life. And it's terrifying. We have got to stop feeling responsible for controlling that because that attempt to control it is devastating to us. And it's a lie. We, We just cannot do it. The art is learning to let go and to live with what is there in front of us, to take it day by day to work out what we have to do and to just walk alongside our human life you know yeah yeah and that you know you talk about sort of alan watts and how he sort of tells you the truth in his writing Mm. as hard as it is to take in the change will not stop happening and the only part we can control is our response which is absolutely true and you think about it in the context of COVID, right? I mean, this tiny, tiny virus Mm. has dismantled all of the social structures and safety structures of the globe. And if that is not a lesson in humility and of uncertainty, then what is, right? Oh my goodness, yeah. And and for it to happen to the whole world at once, I think that's what is so striking about this particular crisis, that nobody escapes this. And whatever, yeah. like we've politicized it so much because, of course, that's what we do because we feel better about it if we can fight about it rather than just live within it. But yeah. we are not in control of what happens to us. We never have been. We never will be. But we can control how we deal with it in the moment. That's all we've got. That's yes. not. A, and I don't think that's even bleak, you know. I think that's actually, that gives me enormous hope because I can just give in and stop feeling like I can, you know, if I only work hard enough, if I only do the right things in the right sequence, you know, it reveals all of that as magical thinking. I agree. And there's so much, you know, I feel like I've, I've gotten through this year. And obviously, I I have all of my privileges and all of that. But in part, it's just been a lesson in faith over fear mm. and not sort of in, you know, a religious sense of religious faith or, or yeah. idealism, but this belief that that's, this is life. Like this yeah. is, this is it. And I loved that scene where you are waking up at three in the morning because why not? <laughs> and then you, you light a candle and you have your lamp and you write one light is steady and sure the other uncertain and flickering I open my notebook and work between these two poles. On balance, it's where I prefer to be, somewhere in the middle. Certainty is a dead space in which there's no more room to grow. Wavering is painful. I'm glad to be traveling between the two. <laughs> Gives me chills, you know? <laughs> but it's so beautiful. Like that and 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 I think that everyone's sort of the myth of certainty has been demolished or crashed or we've been getting a profound lesson in it this year Mm -hmm. in particular maybe but maybe but it's true certainty certainty is death and and the reality is we can't know it's an illusion of control and there if we can find the way to sort of find our power and strength and letting that happen Mm. then that's huge that transformative 
Do you know what I think has been an enormous teacher this year is Black Lives Matter for white people like me anyway. I mean, I, you know, obviously the, the black women who were leading that did not need teaching this, but that message that was sent really strongly to say, white people butt out of this. This is none of your business. You're here to just support this. Like, and Mm. here's how you can behave yourself around it. But like your criticism is not welcome. Your butting in to tell other people how to do it is not welcome. You educating other people is not welcome. Like you sit down and be quiet and listen to what we have to say. And I, I mean, like many people, I found that a profoundly unsettling moment. Like even my own instinct to rush in and help (laughs) is wrong in that context. And I thought about this for a long time and thought, that is such a valuable lesson for so much of life. Like my intervention is not welcome in so much of it, but still I persist in trying to intervene, you know, (laughs) in trying to get my little sticky fingers all over it. And being told to sit down and be quiet, just to pipe down for a while was really good for loads of us. I think if we could bear to listen, which I accept is very, very hard. It is very, very hard because again, I think that's us sort of trying to establish certainty, right? Just to declare to the world that we understand or can understand this experience and that we get it. And yeah, I, I agree. It's like, it, it is a powerful, a very hard lesson. I think particularly for, you know, I like to write, I like to ask questions. I like to understand. Mm-hmm. I want to put, you know, but to be told not even stop talking, but stop asking questions and just hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that is a profound lesson that all of us need to learn sometimes just to sit and to listen and to decenter ourselves, actually. I mean, maybe that's part of the wintering process to know that you are not the hero of this story sometimes. Like you have become a minor character in life for a while and that is your job right now. Like you are falling silent there will be moments when your narrative arc comes to the peak again and you are the center of the universe maybe but for now you are taking a back seat and that's that's a hard thing for us to do because we are told so much about how to be important and central and striving and magnificent and you know what we aren't always and we can't be No, it's so true. I mean, I think anyone who's listening who has lost someone knows Mm. that feeling when you walk outside and you're in the depths of grief and maybe you're leaving the site of the funeral and you look around and you're like, wow, my life has stopped for these moments. Mm. And yet look at the world. It just keeps going. It's a miracle. And similarly, you know, when you lose a job and you're like, oh, this the business is still going, you know, those moments of feeling replaceable or like your pain is irrelevant to everyone else Mm. are really, really profoundly humbling. I think there's two ways of looking at those moments. You know, one is, oh, it turns out I'm not really very important. It turns out I'm disposable. That's massively painful. But the other way to look at that is that is to see that life is like a relay. You know, it's not a a one-man marathon. It's a relay race. And sometimes we tag other people in for a while and and take a rest. And that's a really healthy way to do it. We need that. We need that in order to get the help that we require to survive. 
but we just keep on slugging as if it's a marathon that we can win on our own. We just can't. Yeah. And I think that that's so true, particularly sort of in this moment of time with with social media and this idea that everyone's a brand, you know, which hopefully will will die soon. But, you know, it's got some life yet, hasn't it? (laughs) Because I think we also live in a culture where we feel this need to assert our relevance or share our gifts or any, you know, there are a million ways to look at it, positive Mm. and negative. And to not feel like you're engaging is really hard, but that is the point of your book, right? Like there has to be rest so there can be renewal. Absolutely. And also I think we need to realize that we, I mean, we've actually spent a lot of time the last few years saying you are what you do. I'd like yeah. to say you're, you're not what you do. You're not your doing. You are, you are you, you are enough. Like just existing is fine. And sometimes that's all we can manage. Like other times we're achieving stuff and it's amazing and we're in the spotlight and we're doing great things, but there'll be come a time when we have to rest again. And, you know, there's a political dimension to this because we need to make this work in the opposite direction. You know, like when a woman goes on maternity leave or when someone's sick for a year, we need to find a way not to forget them and to welcome them back in rather than to just fill in the space that they left and say, oh, well, that's a nice opportunity for me. There's there's some compassion that we need to learn to find that recognises that sometimes people have got to dip out for a while, but then we're going to we're going to let them back in again we're going to help them so that it's not devastating when we have to winter yeah we have to hold space we have to learn how to do that culturally yeah. we're yeah. not good at it it's sort of in going back to the black lives matter moment but it's and i think it goes to what we were talking about earlier which is that we've been trained in this scarcity and survival mentality of i can't get off the ferris wheel I can't get off the trail. I'll never be able to get back on because we Mm. don't have a lot of models for that. At least in the United States, there's no paid family leave. It's just an embarrassment the way that we treat each other, treat women culturally. And so it will require sort of a huge amount of care. And, And I think that I love this part too, near the end when you were talking about this idea of usefulness and Mm. how we need to sort of reimagine the way that we think about, you know, you talk about like the things that give us love or the things that give us joy are these moments of care Mm. and, you know, taking care of our, you know, picking up our dog's poop. You know, and (laughs) and but yeah, we we constantly are just talking about the utility of people or what they've interrupted or what they've contributed, and it needs to be we need to get back to this idea of adoration and care and helping helpless citizens, and that's how we thrive. So I'm going to have to tell you about my dog now. So please tell us about your pooping dog. (laughs) Yes, she does poop, definitely. Nearly exactly a year ago, my friend was on holiday in Lesvos in Greece. And she sent back a picture of this little puppy with a broken leg. Mm. And she sort of said, I feel so sorry for this puppy. It's up in the mountains. If I leave her here, she's going to die because winter's coming. And I just in that moment had this incredible sense of mission like that is my dog I've, I'm a cat person I don't really like dogs I was like that is my dog I am bringing this dog home and I'm gonna make this dog okay and we did we had to crowdfund because you know to 
to ship a very injured dog home and then like massive treatment for her. Like, you know, she had to have her leg pinned and then repinned and then a bone graft. And then she got MRSP, which is MRSA for pets, skin grafts, the physio. <laughs> it was endless. But do you know what? The joy that we have found in taking care of this dog has been just the most wonderful thing. But even more than that was the incredible affirmation of having to ask other people for help. We couldn't afford to do her treatment ourselves. I mean, it was absolutely like it cost more than a family car. And we had to ask for help. So we crowdfunded and the number of people that rushed forward to help us, you know, with small donations and some massive donations from strangers that, you know, we never met. We, it was just incredible. It was such a great lesson about care and about how much we got from giving the care, but almost like as much as that, how much we got from taking care from other people. It's, it's a hard thing for us to do, but it's so worth it. <laughs> oh, and to know, I mean, I think that that's all that any of us want, right? Is to understand or to know that we impacted someone's life mm. or, I mean, to save an animal's life, like what a gift. And, yeah. you know, that's the meaning making of life. Mm. And yet, you know, I think as you write, we spend so much time in this busyness trying yeah. to do everything. And as you write, it ends up looking an awful lot like nothing just yeah. one long haze of frantic activity with all the meaning shared away. Mm, uh, that's how my working life felt before I left my job. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. Isn't that awful? And and I also, I look back on that time when I was so busy and trying so hard to be like good at my job. And I think about the brutal attitude I had towards others, like not that I was stabbing people in the back or whatever, but I was so frustrated with other people's desire to rest and to you know to find it all too much and I had to tell myself that it wasn't too much that it was completely worth it and as soon as I left that of course I realized what an idiot I'd been and how yeah it was too much there's not there was nothing that merited that amount of work it was insane and it just made me tired but yeah, and it's like when we don't show compassion to ourselves, we really struggle to show compassion to mm. each other. And then I mm. think that's what props up these systems, right? It's this like, well, I didn't get any help. Why should I help you? Or yeah. I missed vacation. So why should you take your days off? You know, yeah. and we have to break that cycle. Yeah, and do. it happens, you know, personally, it happens in communities and families. And then it clearly happens systemically yeah. of yeah. you didn't help me why should I help you and it makes mm -hmm. a society that is very cruel it and really very does. cold yeah and it makes it, do you know what it really disadvantages women I think I mean it disadvantages loads of people but it systematically disadvantages people who are having children because what happens is that your raising children becomes a vulnerability that other people can flow into to take advantage of that. And I think that's a tragedy. You know, so I remember a big thing being made in my working life once I'd had my son that I couldn't attend evening events anymore. And it's like, well, damn right, I can't. But yeah. you could see other people sort of rubbing their hands together saying, oh, well, you know, she can't do that. Well, I can do that. And think about that. I mean, why are we running in essential work events in people's own family time in the first place? And why are we not all standing up and saying, well, actually, if some people can't take part in this, then we shouldn't be doing it at all. 
there's got to be some solidarity at some point. There does have to be solidarity. And when you think about how many work events, I mean, you were talking about people who are differently able, but you think about work events that revolve around playing sports or going drinking, drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, at night it's, it is complete parent tax. And, you know, at least here, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but here in America, you know, we have a very well um, publicized pay gap, yeah, which is, we, yeah, so do we, don't worry. <laughs> oh, good. Which is more, dra- more dramatic, most dramatic for Native women, yeah. Black women, Latina women, mm-hmm. but it is most dramatic for mothers. Yeah. They are, for, for, for women who do not have children, it is a dramatically smaller gap. So mm-hmm. we, we penalize women in a way that's, insane. The mothers are already in the position where it feels like you can't win, whether you stay at home with your kids or you work or you do some combination of the two. It's a terrible, it's a pretty terrible experience. (laughs) I think we're just going to thoroughly depress ourselves now, but yeah, I mean, it it is appalling. And, and yeah, when you do look at the statistics for ethnic minorities, you know, within those statistics for women in general, it is shocking because that, you know, that means that within our oppression, we're oppressing other people as well. Yes. And just forming chains of oppression in which we're just trying to scramble on top of the next head. And I think, you know, we all have to take a hard look at ourselves over that, really. Each well, one of we- us, I, you know, I don't I don't mean that projecting it out to other people. I literally mean we have to look at ourselves because that's the only behavior we can change. A thousand percent. And yes, it is a, a major systemic issue. And but we too often, I think, sort of put our gaze there yeah. and expect that that's going to change, that the Fortune 500 is going to start to look more like America. Mm. And that that is, it's not a futile exercise. Of course, there should be pressure, but you're right. The only thing we can really control is our response to the world. And yeah. it's incumbent on all of us to change this. And it will. that's the only way I think we'll start to see things shift. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It feels so big, doesn't it? (laughs) It is big, but we are up for it. I think, you know, uh, to quote Glennon Doyle, like we can do hard things. Um, I've not stopped repeating that to myself all this year. (laughs) (laughs) What a phrase that is. I I say it to my son so often now and he looks at me like, oh, for God's sake, not again, lady. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Well, Thank you. I can't wait to read whatever it is that you write. And will you please be my best friend, Catherine? Absolutely. I'm here. BFFs. (laughs) (laughs) And your book is a treasure. And maybe I will also make it an annual tradition to remind myself of the gifts of wintering every year. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Catherine May. For more from Catherine, pick up a copy of her book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. I cannot recommend it enough. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.